if the Sting should win this ball game, they will be coming home tomorrow on Air Canada, arriving in Chicago at 9.32 in the morning. 9.32 in the morning, a bad pass intercepted by Toronto. It's not over yet. There's a Langway driving it upfield. He's at Falzone, but Mishbach is there. Bobby Mishbach upfield. Gets away from Falzone. Here comes the speedster from Gordon Tech. Bobby Mishbach. Bobby still running, tripped up. Ball knocked away by Spalding. Toronto controlled with 18 seconds left. They go to Paskin. Paskin steps around Rojas. 14 seconds left. Two eights of the Langway. Cadelia gets a foot on it and gets it to Marhedic. That should do it. Eight seconds, seven seconds, six seconds. Marhedic coming with Cedinho. Marhedic coming. Three seconds, two seconds, one second. And oh, there it is. The Chicago Sting is the North American Soccer League champion. Chicago, you have a champion again. The Chicago Sting has won the soccer ball. The Sting, a 3-2 victor over Toronto in a bitterly fought game that saw the Sting lead 2-0. Toronto battled back with two goals in the second half. And it was the Magic Man again with help from Gray and Vinicius and Rojas who got the winning goal. And Chicago has won the soccer ball. Mark up another championship for the city of Chicago. Welcome to Good Seats Still Available, a curious little podcast devoted to exploring what used to be in professional sports. Here's your host, Tim Hanlon. Well, hello there, gang. How you doing? My name's Tim Hanlon, and uh, we uh, welcome you once again to our little uh, frivolity that we like to call Good Seats Still Available. Yes, it's our curious little podcast that we'd like to do for you each and every week uh, that's devoted to what used to be in professional sports. Thanks for coming by. And uh, before we get into uh, this week's uh, episode, uh, I do, of course, want to uh, wish all of you uh, as much health and uh, safety as possible. Uh, We're living in uh, extraordinary times. Your health uh, and safety are uh, obviously of supreme concern, and uh, we all uh, are in this together. And of course, the economic realities, too, are starting to play out. It is our intention to do our very best uh, to keep at our weekly schedule to provide whatever little levity and uh, distraction that we can. Lord knows we need it. And uh, I suspect that uh, some of you are are going stir crazy, being self-isolated and uh, and staying at home. Hopefully, you're you're healthily doing so. If you somehow are uh, not doing so, or if you haven't gotten uh, tested and you think you're not feeling well, by God, uh, all means, uh, please do so. Uh, and obviously, please heed all of the uh, warnings that you hear from uh, your trusted local and uh, regional and national officials uh, and uh, and don't endanger uh, the lives and safety of others in the midst of all of this. We reach out to you and we appreciate you uh, you coming by and, and listening to us. And, and hopefully we, uh, like I say, can, uh, you know, uh, give a little bit of respite from uh, the craziness of the of the world out there. And uh, please, by all means, uh, do what you need to do to, t- to stay safe and uh uh, economically viable, uh, and uh, we appreciate, of course, you listening and uh, and giving us uh, your uh, encouragement as well. And we appreciate all the notes that have come in so far. And uh, let's uh, let's move on to some entertaining uh, conversation, shall we? With uh, our guest this week, uh, the legendary head coach and National Soccer Hall of Fame inductee uh, of the uh, old Chicago Sting of the North American Soccer League. His name is Willie Roy. And uh, as you'll soon learn from his accent, is uh, almost you could call a native Chicagoan. <laughs> I, I jest, of course, because he was born in Germany and has a very strong 
uh, and distinctive German accent. But you know, there's no guy uh, more synonymous, I think, uh, with Chicago soccer uh, than that of Mr. Willie Roy, uh, who was the uh, longtime coach of the Chicago Sting uh, from around, well, we'll talk about it, uh, 76, 77 or so. It was, there was an interim head coach title there. We'll get into some of uh, the hows and whys of that. But uh, he uh, stayed with the Sting for right through the end of their at least outdoor uh, life in the North American Soccer League in 1984. Uh, and then a little bit uh, later as the, the indoor thing with the MISL went on, and we'll get into some of that too. Uh, but the uh, the game that you heard there featuring the dulcet tones of Howard Balson, a longtime on-air broadcaster for Chicago Sting games. And uh, there was no more exciting, I think. Well, there are plenty of exciting games in Sting history for sure. Uh, but there was uh, certainly uh, one of them right there. And that was on October the 3rd, 1984, that you just heard when the Chicago Sting won their second ever uh, North American Soccer League championship against the uh, Toronto Blizzard in game two of what was then had become uh, not a singular soccer bowl championship game, but a three game series for the soccer bowl title. Uh, and uh, that was a mere two game, two game, excuse me, two days after he says uh, the first game, which was on October 1st in front of about 8,300 people uh, in uh, the old Comiskey Park in Chicago when the Sting won the that game two to one. Uh, now two days later on a Wednesday evening uh, at Varsity Stadium in Toronto, and actually I think the Blizzard at the time were playing home games at the uh, much newer Exhibition Stadium. But uh, for whatever reason, uh, Exhibition Stadium was not available that evening. So Varsity Stadium, where uh, the old Toronto teams, the Metros, Croatia, and uh, I think even the uh, uh, the Toronto uh, uh, earlier versions of, of Toronto's. Uh, NASL and uh, even uh, precursor uh, lives were. So it was kind of sort of an interesting sort of a, a circle of life there. Uh, but what a game that was on October 3rd. Uh, the Sting had actually gone up to zip, I think, uh, around the minute 68. Uh, we're winning 2 nothing and, and looking like everything was going to be hunky-dory. And then the Blizzard in succession in, uh, in a matter of two and a half minutes scored uh, two goals in the 70th minute and the uh, sorry 71st minute and 73rd minute. And then Pato Marhetic, uh the magic man, uh, a, a guy who we'll be talking about here in a second with uh, our, our guest, uh, Willie Roy, scored in the 82nd minute to, uh, to take it all for the sting, two games to none. And of course, the interesting piece of trivia around that game, that was also the last ever game in total for the North American Soccer League. I'm, I'm not sure people recognized it at the time, although there's absolutely a, a feeling in the air uh, that things were not good. As a matter of fact, uh, quite, quite dire uh, for the North American Soccer League as it, it played out in the months afterwards as it limped along and, and ultimately uh, gave up the ghost, I think, in the early part of 1985. But the Chicago Sting, right, a very uh, interesting team and certainly a... Uh, uh, a big, splashy name. Uh, and the people involved, similarly splashy, great personalities and, and a, a tremendous legacy. And um, as we've talked about in previous episodes, Mike Conklin in particular, you want to search that episode up, longtime sports writer uh, for the Chicago Tribune and uh, uh, scribe, if you will, and, and chronicler of the Chicago Sting, a very fascinating uh, precursor to this conversation with Willie this week. 
you know, the Sting uh, really uh, climbed the mountain in Chicago and became uh, synonymous with uh, uh, its uh, championship uh, history at 1981, ticker tape parades and all that. 1984, I guess not as uh, uh, sort of, uh, you know, uh, memorable as the 81 championship season was, but it certainly solidified the Sting's major league status in a very tough sports town, that of Chicago. Uh, and uh, was absolutely also part of, uh, at least for an initial bit of time, the indoor success. The Chicago Sting also was successful uh, and enjoyed uh, both in the NASL and then later in the major indoor soccer league. And then, of course, it all fell apart, fell apart uh, as a lot of things did in the uh, mid to late 1980s. But I digress. I, I, I encourage you to listen heartily to this great conversation uh, with the head coach of many of those successful years. Uh, with the Chicago Sting, Willie Roy. And, you know, we actually start prior to uh, uh, Willie's uh, uh, tenure with the Sting. And I think it's really important and maybe lost on a lot of people that uh, Willie Roy was a member of uh, some of the uh, earliest teams in pro uh, soccer history in this country in the late 60s when that was getting rebooted. Uh, The Chicago Spurs of the National Professional Soccer League and then the Second year, uh, then becoming the NASL, the Chicago Spurs playing in Comiskey Park. Uh, They relocated to Kansas City to become the Kansas City Spurs in 1968 uh, as well. Uh, And that's uh, part of the uh, the NASL's history. And then Willie was part of the St. Louis Stars, a very uh, important legacy franchise from 71 to 74 in the NASL. All that was before he came to the Chicago Sting, both as a player and then player coach and then as a coach full time. And so we get into all of that, sort of how uh, Willie sort of got involved in pro soccer in the United States in the first place. Oh, and by the way, was part of the U.S. national team for a good eight years from 1965 to 73, including a whole bunch of World Cup qualifications in certainly for the 1970 World Cup and then some. Uh, So all of that stuff uh, and then the sting we get into. With our special guest this week, Willie Roy, the longtime coach of said uh, NASL legacy franchise, uh, coming up in just a few moments. Entertaining is uh, not the best word. It's 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 more than that. I can't come up with another adjective right now, uh, but uh, you will enjoy it for sure. And uh, I look forward to presenting it to you in just a few uh, mere moments. But uh, first, a couple of promotional items. Let's get out of the way uh, to celebrate this conversation. Uh, with the great Willie Roy. How about a few great T-shirts from our friends at streakersports.com. Streakersports.com, the purveyors of sports culture. And with a promo code, good seats for 10% off all of your purchases. And if you go to the defunct leagues section at streakersports.com and with that uh, promo code in hand, uh, you'll find a a whole bunch of great shirts that uh, almost trace the career of Willie Roy. Uh, And what a great way to celebrate by doing so. Uh, The Chicago Spurs of the aforementioned National Professional Soccer League in 1967 uh, is there in a a great T-shirt form for you. You can get uh, a version of that. Uh, You want to get the Kansas City Spurs version uh, for 1968 in the NASL. You can get that, too. And it's in a beautiful red, white and blue sort of uh, uh, look. And it's it's fantastic. And, of course, the St. Louis Stars. Uh, that Willie played out for three, four seasons uh, in beautiful blue and red and white uh, uh, look uh, is there for you as well. So by all means, let's celebrate the early years uh, of pro uh, player-ness that uh, Willie Roy enjoyed by going to streakersports.com 
and uh, searching up those shirts. And by, of course, by all means, using that promo code GOODSEATS for 10% off all of your purchases. Now, do you want a Chicago Sting shirt? Well, the best place that we can send you to that's uh, part of our little promotional uh, family here is our friends at OldSchoolShirts.com. OldSchoolShirts.com. We got a promo code for you there. That's good seats. And you can get 10% off all of your purchases there as well. And you know how good they are, not only for sports, but all kinds of great pop culture stuff. But you want to get the Chicago Sting t-shirt? You can do that there. And uh, it's uh, attractively priced. Uh, There's a different uh, and uh, I think, quote unquote, newer version of the St. Louis Star shirt there for you as well. It's actually on sale this week. You can get that there too. Gee, what else? Uh, You know, a whole bunch of great stuff uh, beyond just soccer and sports at oldschoolshirts.com. And uh, again, please, by all means, use that promo code GOODSEATS and enjoy 10% off all of your purchases there as well. So our thanks to streakersports.com, promo code GOODSEATS, and our friends at oldschoolshirts.com, promo code GOODSEATS for uh, their patronage of the show, uh, your consideration of their wares, and uh, our little tip of uh, our historical hat uh, to the great Willie Roy, who is our guest this week, coming right up. Please enjoy. As a kid growing up, wait for it, I was a huge fan and, and longtime season ticket holder of, yes, the dreaded New York Cosmos back in the day. And uh-huh. the fascination, of course, as I you know grew up was fell in love with the sport, fell in love with the league and the teams and the, you know, and the sting, the hated sting, frankly. Uh, but you understand that. Um, and the the notice, the notion of, you know, and it, it spurred my interest in the sport. And then, of course, seemingly overnight, it went away. It just disappeared. And then the long and, and continuingly torturous history of soccer in this country. Right. But that's that's the kind of impact it had. And it just sort of led to a, a gigantic uh, interest in all these kinds of things and not just in the sport of soccer. So I, I hope in that sort of. And we've had lots of great conversations, especially around soccer, uh, National Hall of Famers in particular, uh, but lots of different sort of memories and, and understandings. Clive Toy, for example. I mean, Paul Gardner. I mean, lots of great, you know, sort of insight and stuff. But um, I'm honored that uh, you could uh, give us a few minutes and maybe we can delve into a little bit of your journey, you know, before, obviously, but certainly in the United States, inclusive of the sting, sure, but not, not sure. exclusively. Make sense? Yeah, Absolutely. You can, you know, ask any questions, uh, especially some of my favorite people like Clive Toy, one of the biggest BS persons I ever met in my life. <laughs> okay, maybe we maybe we could start there. All right, let's let's just start there, and we'll kind of we'll, we'll sort of get back to the original part of the story, right? So, you know, there's a story in in, uh, in uh, Chicago Sting owners. Uh, Lee Stern's uh, book, which I will promote, I think it's out of print, it's called A Kid from the Windy City. Right. right. And he, he talks about sort of the story of, I guess, where the sting was at, I guess this was in 1976 or so, not doing all that well. And Clive Toy was the president of the team at the time. And, and Lee essentially said that he was, you know, he wanted to make a change. He wanted to bring you in. I guess you were an assistant coach at the time to lead the team and, and Clive was either I, whatever uh, obstinate or, or uh, had other ideas and, and kind of demurred on the idea. 
but but that's that's Lee's opinion. What well, give us a story of how you became the coach? I I can, I you know what um, I will give you the uh, total truth as far as that is concerned. I took over the uh, Chicago thing after Bill Folks uh, was fired, and we finished the uh, season six and six. Uh, you know, uh, and. I don't even blame Bill Folks. I actually liked the guy. He was honest. He was truthful. And sometimes you have injuries. Sometimes you have stuff going on that you can't control as a coach. And But anyway, so Clive Toy comes in uh, as the uh, president. I don't know what happened to him in New York because, you know, he uh, kind of self proclaimed himself as the uh, the god of soccer in the United States in a sense that he brought Pele in, he brought Beckenbauer in. Well, Tim, let me tell you, you know what brought Pele in? You know what brought Beckenbauer in? It's money from Warner Communication and from Atlantic Records. You know, that's what brought... Uh, Clive had no clue... Uh, I think he was a sports writer in London at the time. And, you know, he really didn't have any clue as far as, you know, bringing in players. So anyway, the next season starts and he brings in this coach from Manchester United, who apparently was an assistant coach, Malcolm Musgrove. And, you know, and Lee said, oh, I want you to stay on with the coaching staff. I said, Lee. I don't want to be part of it because a lot of players that I played with as a teammate in 75 uh, and 76, I broke my leg. So I wasn't, but then I coached them, you know, for the uh, latter part of uh, the season when Bill folks was fired. And I said, they're going to have loyalty towards me. And I don't want to disrupt that for the uh, new head coach. You know, no, you got to go. You got to go. So we went on a trip to um, the Caribbean preseason. You got to go. You got to. You got to help out. You got to help out. That's Lee Stern. So you know, reluctantly, I went, and my leg actually healed at the time. And we played exhibition games in Martinique. Uh, we played against the uh, Cuban national team, the first team, professional team to play. Uh, and then I think there was the baseball team that followed us. Yeah, there was a very famous uh, trip there, right? The, the Sting and, and the, the national team of Cuba down there, yeah. Right, right. And you know what? Whenever we had injuries, Malcolm Musgrove would ask me, uh, uh, can you play 20 minutes? You know, and, and uh, yeah, of course. You know, my leg is sealed up. Not a problem at all. And after that whole trip, uh, I was the leading goal scorer. On, on this preseason tour, and Malcolm said, well, we can't use your name. You know, no, no, I use anybody's name. I don't care whose name. Give the goal to, you know, uh, you know anybody, Elvis, uh, Presley. Uh, it, it didn't mean anything uh, as far as I was concerned. We were so bad as a team that when we landed in Chicago and I barely got my foot opened the front door of my house, got in, phone call, Lee Stern, the boss, how's the team looking? I said, Lee, you just hired a brand new coach. You guys hired him, you know, 
ask him, don't ask me. Why are you calling me? You know, it's like a spy, like I'm going to spy on him. <laughs> and I said, but if you have a meeting and you have Malcolm, myself, you, and if Clive Torrey was supposed to be part of it, you know what? Uh, and you ask me questions, then I will answer them honestly. Well, you know how the team started that year. I think we were 0-12 or whatever. This is, it was uh, this is the 1978 season, I think, right? Right, right. You know, so uh, I get a phone call, and Lee liked his uh, title. Uh, he used to call me Kid, Kid, the boss. You're taking the team over. I said, hell no, I'm not going to take this, you know. I mean, you want to ruin yourself, your reputation or anything, you take that team over. No, I says, absolutely not. And, you know, I, you know, Clive Torrey, through his partner, um, who lives in Sweden, Burio Lance, uh, all the contracts basically went through the Swedish guy. So we ended up getting like four Yugoslavian players, Meskovic, uh, uh, Milkovic. Uh, they played like in the third division in France. And, you know, I don't know how much money Lee spent for them at the time. But you know what? The guys were absolutely useless. I mean, you know, it was like a joke. But before they even came, and I'm going to backtrack uh, a little bit. Sure. Um, I went on the scouting uh, t uh, trip with uh, Clive Torrey. We were going to look at an African national team, uh, and I forgot what country it was in Africa, but that's not important. So we grab a cab, not Uber, but a regular cab, and we're driving, going to see, you know, uh, see the players and I didn't see anything worthwhile seeing and blah, 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 blah. Then I said, you know what, um, I'll go to Germany and there are a couple of players by following the uh, German news. I found out that they were not in favor uh, with the club anymore, that we could probably get them. One of them was Arno Steffenhagen, who was a great player. I mean, he was a European type player. Uh, all-star and Horst Blankenberg uh, who also was uh, a great defender you know. Played alongside Johan Cruyff at uh, in a uh, yeah. Ajax yeah? at the Ajax, yeah, Ajax yeah, and uh, uh, you know, so I kind of worked out that deal and uh, they came to us, joined us and it it made a little bit of difference, but not. But we kept losing, and then going back again. But Lee said, "You know, you're taking over." And I said, "No, I'm not. Uh, you know, I don't want any uh, want any part of this." My biggest success with Clive's story was when I went on the scouting trip. The only thing he always told me in Europe: make sure you bring me back a box of Cuban cigars, not players, Cuban cigars. That, you know, if I brought him back a box of Cuban cigars, I had a successful trip. So, you know, but <laughs> that was easily done. Uh, but <laughs> but, it, but it, does say, it does sound, though, Willie, that, that you were kind of behind the scenes already kind of beginning, if not already starting to put your hands and your imprints on, on this team, even if you maybe were reluctant to do so. Because I, my understanding, again, from what I read, right, and now I'm talking to the source, 
is that kind of Musgrove was kind of given the credit for finding and or signing people like Stefan Hagen and Granitza and, and Blankenberg and, and Jorgen Christensen. Uh, but it sounds like you were kind of involved, if not very involved, in sort of isolating no, those, those you players. Know, you, you know who signed them? You're talking to them right here. Whether it was Karl-Heinz Granitza, Jürgen Christensen, Arne Steffenhagen, uh, uh, Horst Blankenberg, you know, but I'm the one that did it. Nobody else. No, there's, uh, if anybody else would tell you that, they're absolutely liars. Uh, no, I made contact. I went to their homes and, uh, you know, get all the, uh, uh, you know, the context, the initial, then obviously it took least money to finalize the deals, but uh, no. Yeah, so, okay, so then how, how, what convinces you then finally to to take over the reins? Because essentially, you, you're already doing many of the things that arguably Malcolm and or Clive should be or have been doing. What convinced you to kind of go over the top and, and take the reins yourself? I sat down with Lee, and, and I told Lee at the time that the only way I will take over uh, the, uh, you know, the uh, soccer program would be if I was in charge of all the summer camps, if I was in charge of player acquisition, if I was in charge of anything that had anything to do with soccer, okay, uh, that the only person I would report to is Lee Stern, not to Clive Torrey, you know, because I saw the obvious failures that this man had. And, uh, you know, and he totally agreed to it. So then I want to say maybe a couple of months later, Clive Torrey resigns as president from the Chicago Sting because he couldn't do any deals that he would, you know, that he had with his buddy Burio Lance in Stockholm in Sweden. So, you know, the power was gone, you know, it's, you know, what is he going to do now? Nothing. Lee absolutely supported that. And that's basically when I became the team manager and coach and, you know, and took over the team. So this was, this was mid season, 1978, right? I, I, um, and then obviously full time and, and, uh, onward in, in 79. And we'll get into the rest of that story in a little while, but I, you might want to remind our audience, you were kind of hinting at, it, um, the the change in the demeanor and the performance of the team was seemingly overnight, right, once that change was made. I mean, if you look at the stats, I mean, you, you ultimately made the first round of the playoffs in 78 after starting very woefully and despite having a, a, a losing record, which is <laughs> a North American Soccer League specialty, but I digress. But the, the, the turnaround was dramatic, wasn't it, pretty quickly? You know what, um, not only on the soccer field, uh, but you talk about Tim Weigel, you talk about Johnny Morris, you talk about Bruce Roberts, you talk about all the uh, television people. We had characters. Uh, they were great interviews. And then, you know what, one thing led to another thing. And then pretty soon people got excited, you know, listening, you know, to Carl uh, Heinz with his pink glasses in those days. I don't know whether they were in style or not, but... Uh, a lot of people commented on that, and uh, and these were really top-notch first 
division players in Europe. Yeah, and uh, for for those outside the Chicago area, uh, uh, Willie's uh, referencing uh, uh, most of the uh, the major sort of uh, uh, television newscasters in the Chicago area, and and then it basically became much more of a a story, not just about this team and playing soccer, but also, frankly, the personalities involved, and then that actually sowed the seeds for what was to come in, in years past. But but obviously it didn't immediately translate into to fans in the stands, right? But but you did feel, and Lee did feel, that you were onto something and obviously certainly more competitive, which is ultimately, I guess, what mattered, you know, at the end of the day, right? No, no. Uh, I, I, they, were, they were excellent players. And, you know, when you build a team, you know that as well as I do, uh, there needs to be chemistry. And whether I was lucky or not, uh, Karl Heinz and Jürgen Christensen played together in Berlin with the, uh, uh, you know, one of the uh, Bundesliga teams. Uh, Arno and uh, Horst Blankenberg actually played in Hamburg, and uh, they won the European Cup, uh, UEFA Cup Championship. They didn't have the Champions League title then. They, it was only called the UEFA, you know. Uh, cup day one, so they were teammates together. So that kind of you look at the chemistry. You know, they knew each other. They came together, and uh, you know, and you know, uh, maybe you need a little bit of luck. Uh, maybe because um, I was born in Germany, that I could speak their their language. Maybe that helped a little bit. And you put all those pieces together, and. Uh, Things really, uh, you know, worked out for us. Okay, so I want to put a push pin in this part of the story, and I want to actually go back uh, because I want to actually get into the story of how you actually got to the United States in the first place. But I think before that happens, maybe you can give our audience a sense of uh, your journey to becoming a soccer player specific, uh, generally, and then maybe a bit on how the hell you made this jump to the United States and this fledgling 1967 situation of not one but two <laughs> professional leagues that were trying to kind of get jumpstart the sport in this country how, how does all of that happen both uh, in the beginning of your career and how do you make the jump to the united states arguably a real chance right well uh obviously i was born in germany and as kids, uh, you know, we played valley soccer or, you know, you want to call it basketball, uh, hoops in the backyard or whatever. So when we came over here, I was 13 years old and in a neighborhood where nobody even knew what a soccer ball was like. Uh, we used to play um, uh, baseball initially uh, in the schoolyards in the uh, uh, grade school. But we had a, you know, like a, a, a pitching zone where you would throw the ball and we would stand behind it and try to hit it, get a hit, or, you know, do all the stuff and things like that. But anyway, as we got a little bit older, I think I was 15, there was a German club called the Wanderers on the southeast side of Chicago. Uh, they had their home field in Calumet Park and... Uh, you know, we used to take a bus. I don't know how many different buses we had to take, but it took us like an hour and 50 minutes uh, from Midway, where we used to live, uh, to get all the way to 95th and, uh, you know, the, uh, the lakefront, Calumet Park. And, you know, being part of 
the German community there. They had that German clubhouse. They used to have German dancers and, you know, stuff like that. So it became like a second home for us. So you're a Chicago, basically, transplant. And how how are you being, shall we say, discovered? And, and maybe sort of how do you get into the idea of being part of a fledgling professional soccer league that, uh, you know, in the in the halo of 1966 and the World Cup and a couple of games actually being broadcast in the United States, it, there there seemed to be a, a frenzy around that time to get like get these leagues up and running, which was just, I mean, seemingly crazy, I guess, if you look back on it. But how do you get involved and, and get into the mix of being part of, of at least one of those teams in Chicago? Well, the um, even now, I don't know whether I was a good player or a bad player or an average player or a great player. <laughs> now you're being uh, modest, I think, but okay. I, I scored, you know, uh, I know my first game with the Wanderers senior team. That was when I was 15 years old. I scored three goals against the, um, at that time, the Gary Kickers in the first half. And then they benched me and said, you know what? We got to look out for you because they're going to try to hurt you. You know, you're just a young kid, you know, playing against men and stuff like that. And I was kind of PO'd, you know, I said, you got to be kidding me. They couldn't kick me in the first half. Who's going to kick me in the second half? And, uh, you know, that type of thing. I had a nose for scoring goals. And, uh, you know, when you score that many goals, uh, uh, you know, People will take notice, uh, you know, of that. And uh, that's basically how, you, you know, how, probably how I built my reputation by scoring goals. And the most I ever scored in a game was 11. Uh, I had a lot of games with six goals and, you know, stuff like that. But I, you know, what, when I scored six goals, I was kind of ticked off because I wanted to score seven. Or then eight, maybe, uh, you know, that type of thing. And the uh, drive, as I got a little bit older, going through high school, um, I got involved. Uh, my high school, uh, Brothers High School, didn't have any soccer. So I played football. Uh, I was the kicker on a football team and punter on a football team. And I also went out for wrestling eventually winning the state championship as a senior uh, and helping our school win the first state title, you know, against all, you know, all the schools at that time, there was no uh, division four or, you know, division five, division six or whatever. Uh, Everybody competed, you know, against everybody. So that helped me actually, I think uh, wrestling actually also helped me become uh, more, I don't mean confident, because you know what, when you pretty much beat everybody, then you're not afraid to compete against anybody. Yeah, well, it's also yourself versus having a team to sort of rely on. and, and, and So, okay, but uh, an interesting point here, though, is that you're also somehow getting involved and in, 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 uh, having a starring role, if you will, in the U.S. national soccer team. Now, again, in the 60s, right, it's 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 obviously a different sensibility, but still 
people know of your talent enough to to get you into the the national team environment, right? I got to think that that your exposure in 65, 66 or so made you an easy recruit, I guess, for whatever this fledgling professional thing was going to be. Maybe how you got into the national team circuit and maybe then how that got you perhaps to the Chicago Spurs part of the deal. The um, uh, the thing actually with the uh, national team, we used to play games then. You had the the East Coast, you had the Midwest, you had the West Coast. Uh, uh, so we, you know, uh, at that time, uh, you were, you know, I was playing with the Chicago All-Stars at that time. So they, you know, we had a Midwest team that actually played in New York against the East uh, team. And uh, I scored goals against them. So then, you know, suddenly the bigger picture showed up. Uh, well, if he can score goals and beat the East Coast team, uh, uh, you know, uh, you know, we got to keep an eye on it. And same with the West Coast team. Uh, uh, um, and um, the, the success that our region had, uh, our all-star region, I'm talking about Illinois, basically, had against New York and had against Los Angeles in those days, uh, you know, then people notice you. So how, how do you find out about this thing called the National Professional Soccer League, and in particular the Chicago Spurs? Do you remember how sort of that comes about? Like, are you actually looking? Are you, like, just salivating at the prospect of actually being able to play professionally in this country? Or, you know, does it, you know, how do you how do you get tapped on the shoulder to even be part of that? Well, I was, you know, what, uh, thankful. Uh, one of my friends, who was also a partner of the Chicago Spurs, a guy named L. Kasmerik, uh, uh, there were two owners he was the uh, smaller part owner. He actually was involved in Chicago soccer, so he knew my background, and he knew pretty much everybody's background uh, in Chicago. And uh, uh, you know, so he and it kind of opened the door for me pretty easy. You know, saying okay, he brought in a bunch of foreign players. Uh, a guy that played for Germany, Horst Schemaniak, 43 times, I'm going to say. Gino Di Ribertis uh, from Italy, Joe Haverty from Ireland, uh, a bunch of players from England. Uh, and uh, he's the one that actually had the soccer knowledge uh, to, put this, uh, to put this team together. And uh, he knew of my background uh, you know, as an amateur player and stuff like that. So that's basically how I got in. So what was it like? How much were you getting paid? Uh, obviously, CBS was uh, uh, broadcasting games. Where were you playing? And what was the what was the atmosphere? Because I think a lot of people, especially the money men behind this league and then the other one, too, were expecting a lot more sort of out of this. But what what was it like playing and and? Uh, I know, I know, it wasn't wasn't really well attended for sure. But I'm just curious. No. <laughs> describe you know what? Because it's got to be I great just, and also not great at the same time. You know what? I just spent my last quarter from the first paycheck I got from the Spurs, so <laughs> there was no money. It was a matter of uh, hoping eventually 
that you, you're going to make money. You know, I can tell you my first two contracts, uh, uh, the first one with the uh, Spurs. And, you know, uh, obviously money has different values then. Um, I made 12000 My second year, I made the all-star team in Kansas City. Uh, I was the second leading goal scorer in the league. Uh, so I ended with bonuses and stuff like that. I ended up making $16,000. And I'm going to put it in perspective uh, to you. Uh, I was a big car fanatic. So I bought a Corvette. The Stingray came out, you know, with the T-tops, the two panels on top that you can take out and stuff like that. Well, my first Corvette cost $3,800. So uh, the apartment that I lived in, uh, a nice two-bedroom apartment in Kansas City, uh, uh, was like $75 a month. Uh, so, uh, I know of somebody, um, my friends, uh, did I play golf with in golf outings later on that were in football, uh, the Billy Pierce's in baseball, uh, the Ronnie Bulls, uh, playing football who worked just till about three, four years ago. And I'm saying, you know, they didn't get paid much. Dick Butkus, who went to school. Uh, we were at Illinois together. Uh, he was on a football scholarship. I was on a wrestling scholarship. And we lived across the hall from each other in Scott Hall. Uh, you know, I think he got a signing bonus at that time of $50,000. I might not be totally correct, but that number sticks in my head for some reason. And nowadays, you know, you're talking about signing bonus guaranteed. 30 million, 50 million, uh, especially a player like Butkus was. Well, uh, it's good to know that you were saving your money, right? <laughs> Blowing it yeah, off. Yeah, oh, yeah. Yeah. You know, I actually lost that quarter and then eventually I found it. So, <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, so, the, uh, but 67, so this is, uh, you're playing games at Soldier Field, right? And, and it's, right, it's right. already cavernous, but, but uh, you're, the average attendance, I mean, I, you were lucky to get two, 3,000 people a game there, right? You're right. Yeah. And you know what? Those were usually uh, the ethnic people. And that's why uh, when they built these teams, they brought all, you know, oh, we got to have an Italian, we got to have a German, we got to have a Polish player, we got to have, uh, you know, whatever, uh, you know, to make sure that we're going to attract different uh, nas nationalities to these games instead of, like, you know, people ask me too, you know, oh, the Chicago Sting are, are you know, uh, top heavy with German players, you know, and stuff. No, I said, you know what, they're top heavy with good players. You know, eventually you want to sell good, exciting soccer. You don't want to sell the ethnic, you know, part of it only, uh, you know. Uh, the play of the NPSL, right, which uh, for folks who who, are, who have uh, been following sort of the history and our exploration, right, was on national television versus, say, the United Soccer Association, which did not have uh, that that luxury. The NPSL was also a quote unquote renegade league that year, right? And that FIFA was not uh, endorsing it; it had endorsed this other one. Uh, I, there's one story that I want to ask, and I don't think I've ever been able to ask this question. 
Do you remember, to your recollection, during a play, I, I'm assuming there must have been at least one uh, Spur, Chicago Spurs game that was on national television, right? You know what? I, I, you know what? I wouldn't. Wouldn't remember. No, I wouldn't. I wouldn't be able to tell you that. Well, no. let me let me no. ask you. Well, let me ask you this then, because this might uh, maybe help uh, s- circle around it. So, there, <laughs> we've had some interesting stories about how uh, on those national telecasts uh, that referees would sort of call these phantom fouls, so that commercials could be played and play would be interrupted artificially. That's correct. Do you remember any of that? Yeah. Yeah. No. No. That is correct. Yeah. Because they they wanted to have the timeout to run the commercials. No, that I remember, you know, a hundred percent. So no, that is correct. Well, that that's crazy, right? I mean, you must have been just. Uh... Of course, you're pretending like somebody kicked you, and you're going down, faking an injury, which really was not an injury um, at all. You know, stuff like that. No, that was BS. Absolutely. You know what BS stands for, right? <laughs> Just a little bit, I think so. so. All right, so so okay then. As uh, and we want to do the history of it, but uh, the merger of the two leagues and the NASL sort of formed and stuff. Uh, the Mustangs of the USA essentially become the Chicago franchise, and you guys, uh, for what various reasons, need to to move somewhere, and that place became Kansas City. And you went along with the team to Kansas City as the Spurs of a Kansas City right. variety. What? How different or similar was that? You went into a totally. Chicago had a big ethnic group, you know, a lot of Greek Americans, German Americans, Polish Americans, and in Kansas City, you didn't have that kind of clientele. So, you know, suddenly, I mean, it's a totally different market. Uh, I think, you know, absolutely a great sports city. Uh, We had a reunion a couple of years ago, the Hall of Fame reunion uh, at the new soccer stadium that they have there. Uh, they, they are just absolutely good sports fans. Uh, and I know we played uh, a couple exhibition games, one against the Scottish team, and uh, our president, El Kasmerig, he hired his own uh, referee, you know, one of his buddies, to make sure that we would actually win the game. And, you know, the referees with the whistle in the hand, they can call a penalty kick any time at all. But somehow the word got out and the league at that time uh, and uh, made sure that they brought another referee in to whistle the game. So before the game even started, there was uh, competition going on between both officials. No, no, I'm in charge. No, I'm going to be the referee and... No, you know, so it was uh, it was kind of kind of comical. Uh, but all this time, you're also playing for the U.S. national team, right? Like qualifying for 1970 and all that. So, um, so you're you're absolutely in the mix, right? And you had you were rookie of the year the year before in '67. I mean, you know, obviously you're standing out as a talent. Um, what happens in Kansas City? Because then there was kind of a pause in your pro career, at least as it relates to this fledgling North American Soccer League from Kansas City. Huh? Well, we had a coaching change, and a guy named Janusz Badel, who was coaching a team from Pittsburgh, he got involved in it, and uh, he brought a, uh, a bunch of players uh, with him from the uh, Pittsburgh team, and uh, we didn't hit it off well, 
but you know, he's in charge, so he can do whatever he wants to do. And his message when I played was, if you don't score a goal today, you're going to be on the bench. That was his motivation factor. And, uh, you know, to me, uh, that's not the way I would coach a team or I would have coached a team because you could have gotten three assists and not score a goal and it still helped the team to win. Uh, and, and that kind of set me back, yeah. Well, and I guess, it, look, this is also the time when the now merged North American Soccer League really contracted to the point of being literally almost on, basically on death's door, right? We talk about five mm -hmm. teams. You know, there was a very, very dark period of, of time professionally for the sport of soccer in this country, but it did start to kind of get some new, some new roots uh, in 1971, 1972 or so. And, and you found your way back into the pro game with the St. Louis Stars. How does that happen? Well, uh, the uh, coach, actually, they, uh, the uh, Stars had a coach uh, from Chicago, George Meyer, initially. And, you know, and some of the teammates that actually played with the St. Louis Stars uh, were also uh, teammates of mine with the uh, U.S. national team. So I guess uh, the way I got connected with them is they fired George Meyer and uh, a guy named Casey Frankovich, who also played uh, in St. Louis against me uh, when I played for the Chicago Spurs and Kansas City Spurs. He played uh, with the St. Louis Stars. So I guess he, he kind of knew of me. Uh, and I got a phone call from him. Um, um, saying, you know what, would you like to move down to uh, uh, St. Louis and play with the, And I said, uh, no, I have a house. I have a family. And the money was absolutely a joke. So we worked out a situation where I would actually fly only to games, whether it was in Dallas or Rochester, New York, or in New York, or uh, it didn't matter. Uh, I would fly to games, and after the games, I would fly home and do my regular daily, you know, uh, job that I was working at. And uh, it turned out that when I joined the team, and I'm sure you can probably look up the record. I think they were like two and twelve, or two and ten. I mean, and we ended up the next year going to the finals. Uh, in the, you know, uh, in the league, um, only to lose to New York um, in overtime on a penalty kick or, you know. Right. That was uh, that was the uh, the championship game in 72 at, at uh, Hofstra uh, University in the, Long Island and arguably the beginning of, well, you probably didn't even know it then, but the Cosmos, uh, you know, sort of standing out. And t give me a sense, though, that that sounds like, I don't want to call it, well, it sounds still kind of semi-pro, right? Because... Here, you know, you still can't make a full-time job out of this professional soccer. No, thing no. Even despite you being one of the best players in the country, frankly. Yeah, no, there was no money. I mean, you know, uh, and forget the money side of it only. There was no stability. I mean, you know, I could have moved with my family and uh, I'm sure there were fans. They probably would, would have given me, a, you know, a job uh, to go along so I could practice with the team, which I never did. I never, you know, I never practiced with the team. I just 
showed up for games. After the games, the coach, Casey, would bring me back to the airport. I'd fly back or, you know, whatever. And uh, uh, that was basically it. There was no stability at all. Um, describe to me the quality of play, because this obviously will lead into how you then made the, uh, the got into the, the Chicago Sting situation. But, uh, you know, um, in St. Louis, uh, playing in, I mean, there were times you were playing at, uh, uh, at Bush Memorial Stadium, which was cavernous, but also the smaller Francis Field at Washington University. I mean, the, the qual- to your point, stability, right? Not only that, but, you know, th- there were not sort of a, a, there was not a consistent quality of field. There certainly wasn't a consistent quality of team preparation and uh, uh, training. Uh, just yeah, yet there were arguably in those years that you were in St. Louis, the beginnings of, and, and frankly, fairly quickly, some real, you know, progression and movement towards, you know, what the NASL was starting to become, right? Things like television again and things like expansion to the West Coast. And the, it really kind of started to kind of get going, albeit St. Louis, maybe not so much of that. But describe to me, I guess, maybe like a 1971-72 kind of feeling to maybe what it was like, say, in the mid-70s when things seemed to be starting to gain some steam. That's my perception, at least. Well, uh, let me say this. Uh, Having played with the Chicago All-Stars, and we played against many European teams, that would uh, come on vacation over here or preseason and get ready to play. And uh, the Chicago All-Stars, we held our own, beating some of the uh, you know, professional teams from Europe uh, 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 in these exhibition games that, uh, that we had. And the same thing in, you know, same thing in St. Louis, uh, where we also played against teams from Greece, uh, you know, tap the, uh, tap division teams and, you know, we would beat them. And then it seemed like everybody was kind of surprised, but the level of players and a lot of them, uh, I have to say were foreign born players like myself. And, you know, that had a feeling for soccer, the love for soccer and all the stuff. And, uh, and that's so, not so much many American born players in those days, but it kind of carried together and it bonded, you know, with both sides. And, uh, I, I, you know, we didn't have to be ashamed for the performance that we put out on the field. And how about, how about fans and, and, and general awareness? I mean, did you feel like you you were discovering or finding a new core of fans or was it a tough slog? Were you kind of playing still in, in, in anonymity uh, did you feel a change in that? Well, you know, but when you, um, everybody loves a winner. And uh, basically, uh, you know, whether it was in Chicago with the Sting or in St. Louis uh, or in Kansas City, when you start to win, um, you obviously are going to attract people. You know, some might say, you know, I want to see what the hell these guys are wearing in these short pants or whatever the reason is. And, uh, uh, you know, and as you start to win, you're going to get noticed. And then people want to be part of that, you know, situation. Uh, And uh, everything improved. I, I don't know the exact 
level, you know, as far as crowd, you know, because owners, uh, a lot of them used to say, well, we only had 15,000 and some of them maybe didn't want to pay taxes. So we said we only had 12,000, you know, as far as that is concerned. But the enthusiasm, uh, certainly you could see it was getting stronger and stronger every year. All right. So how, how does Chicago happen? How do you get back to your, if you will, your hometown and, and assistant coaching, right? Did you decide that you were, I don't, I don't remember. Did you, were you a player as well when you came to the sting as well as sort of the assistant coach or how, how does that all happen? No, I was a player initially and um, it's actually quite a story. The Chicago sting supposedly, uh, they said they made a deal with St. Louis, you know, that they would have my rights also of a goalkeeper, Mike Winter, that they would have his, uh, have his rights. Anyway, the first person that I had, um, that I had the conversation about money with, uh, was Bill Folks, the first coach, the Chicago Sting had. And that was absolutely ridiculous that, you know, I said, you know what, I don't want to insult you and please don't insult me. You know, nothing to do. The second conversation I had with a, a fellow named Mike Pyle, and I don't know whether it means anything to, uh, for you. He was the, uh, he played center for the Chicago Bears. You know, very nice, wonderful person, good football player. And, uh, you know, conclusion was the same thing. I said, Mike, I don't want to insult you. I watch you playing football on television and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, I don't want to insult you. And please don't insult me either. So the next thing is I get a phone call from Lee Stern's secretary. And she said, Mr. Stern would like to meet with you. And I said, fine. So I went to the office, uh, which was at Michigan and Wacker, uh, over looking straight ahead to the uh, Wrigley building. So I go in and he asked me to go into Mike Pyle's office. I go in there. There's a full blown portrait of me, six foot, you know, under door. And Lee Stern is standing in there with a bunch of uh, darts. So, you know, I looked at him and I, you know, I basically laughed at him. He's a multimillionaire, you know, thinking he invented something new. You know, I, I told him, you know, I said, Mr. Stern, I made a living before I met you here today, and I'm going to make a living after I leave you here today. So what happened is the uh, Sting were going on a preseason trip to England. So I suggested to him, uh, why don't I go with the team? And if, uh, if I play well, you know, then you're going to, and we're talking peanuts now. We're talking, you know, six, seven thousand dollars a year for the season. We're not talking, you know, fifty, sixty, seventy thousand dollars, because I still have my regular job. And I said, and if I come back, uh, you have the choice to make: either you sign me for for the seven thousand or whatever I want, or you can not sign me and say, you know what? Okay, uh, he didn't make the team. Well, when I came back, Bill folks make me uh, the captain of the team and stuff like that. So it spoke for itself, you know. 
Well, obviously Lee is a character, right? And you know, uh, and and uh, being a, 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 a wheeler and dealer in the futures market in Chicago, right? And and you know, part of the, if you will, the kind of the new era, a brash, well, brash, or, or of of uh, owners coming into this league at this time that Phil Woosnam was trying to 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 bring in and and drum up and 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 you know solidify some of these major markets as the march towards national attention and recognition and stars and television and all that kind of stuff to the outsider it would seem like hey chicago uh, the sting uh, willing to make some commitment uh, some money at least in the short term behind it uh this league is starting to get some real traction it, it almost seems like almost uh, uh truly opportunistic for you and 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 local uh, an opportunity at that you know what uh in those days, you know, I'm raising a family. I have three boys and, you know, every dollar helped pay some bills or did something. And I was still able to play, uh, you know, at my age, I was in my early thirties and, you know, stuff like that. So every little, every, and, you know, I was concerned about my family more than I was concerned at that time about my you know, soccer, future, blah, 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 blah. Even though, uh, you know, um, without any question, I felt that I, you know, I could still play and hold my own with anybody, you know, stuff like that. So, and uh, you're right. I'm going to tell you a little story happened about five, six years ago. Uh, Do you know the uh, White Sox announcers? Sure, Steve Stone and uh, uh, Ken, uh, Ken the Hawk and and yeah and others to come. Sure, who's the other one? Uh, but anyway, uh, Lee was kind enough uh, every year, and we still, you know, we still talk to each other. So he said to me, uh, the whole family, we were at a White Sox game. He said, "Kid, let's go down to, uh, down there and talk to Steve Stone." We go down there, and then typically. Lee, we walk in there, said hi, you know, Billy. Oh yeah, we know Billy. And uh, suddenly he says, yeah, "That's the guy that made me lose millions of dollars, you know, coaching the team. If we would have lost right off the bat, I would have folded the franchise, saved all this money." And then uh, not Steve Stone, but his partner said, "Lee, if it wasn't for Billy, you'd just be another rich Jew." in Chicago that nobody would have known. And then Lee looked at me and said, let's go back up to the box again. (laughs) 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 Wonderful memory. (laughs) All right, we're going to put a push pin uh, in this conversation because uh, it, uh, it continued and uh, we want to bring you uh, another full episode's worth of interesting stuff because Willie certainly is not shy uh, and has got plenty of opinions. And we were only just getting ready to get sort of deeper into the fuller uh, Chicago sting part of the Willie Roy story. So stay tuned uh, in a couple of weeks for part two of this uh, great conversation with uh, the great, similarly great, Willie Roy. And uh, we encourage you, of course, to uh, stay tuned for more episodes to come. And, and like I said, we're here for you uh, as best as we can. We, we know that uh, in some respects, uh, all of this uh, this topic, this podcast can be seemingly a little frivolous uh, given the uh, dire and uh, 
very intense uh, situations we all find ourselves in now uh, as a country, as individuals, as families, etc. But again, we're hoping that uh, our little genre, our little focus, our little obsession uh, continues to uh, uh, delight and perhaps, uh, shall we say, distract uh, while boredom and uh, other things may uh, sort of creep into our little uh, consciousness is here here we uh, we can hopefully give you a little bit of respite from such and uh, we appreciate Willie uh, for this week and hopefully another week's episode uh, and we also appreciate you giving a li- giving us a listen uh, as uh, a lot of you have been continuing to do and then it's frankly all across the globe too uh, especially with uh, our soccer episodes which uh, you can imagine naturally uh, play very well in uh, in foreign lands here and uh, and far. So you want to keep uh, abreast of what's going on with the show. Of course, our website is the best central place to do that. That's goodseatsstillavailable.com. That's where all of our old episodes are. Uh, if you haven't subscribed to us yet, uh, by all means, please do so. There's a, a treasure trove of almost now three years worth of great interviews and, and, and awesome library content. There's uh, binge listening for you to have uh, in all of your, uh, you know, in, as, when boredom creeps in, uh, hopefully this will uh, uh, soothe and, uh, and and intrigue you uh, during the process. So have at it uh, and tell your friends, by God's, for God's sakes, if they're uh, they're missing some sports in their lives. We all are, of course. One great way is to maybe reminisce about uh, some of the uh, sort of oft forgotten stories and teams and leagues uh, that we like to focus on here. So please, by all means, introduce them to our, our vast library and growing of, uh, of great shows and conversations. And uh, we appreciate your doing so. And I'm sure they will, too. Uh, our uh, social media feeds, of course, alive and well. You'll find us on Good Seats. Excuse me. You'll find us on Twitter. Yeah, that's what I'm trying to say. Uh, at Good Seats Still. That's where you'll find us on Twitter. You'll find us on uh, Instagram at Good Seats Still Available. Uh, you'll find a little page to uh, devoted to us on Facebook as well. Just uh, search us up. Uh, just search us up there and you'll find us there. And of course, you can send us email. We're at hello at goodseatsstillavailable.com. And of course, when you're also on the website, just search around and find our little weekly newsletter, email-wise, we will send to you. By all means, uh, sign up for that, and we'll uh, we'll make sure that you're a little bit ahead of the game in terms of what our uh, individual week's episodes are going to be a little bit uh, ahead of the general populace. And of course, our continued thanks to our pal Jerry Payne, uh, Jerry Payne Audio Excellence. Uh, Jerry is hunkered down and uh, and self-isolating and keeping off the streets down in uh, metropolitan Atlanta, just like we're doing here in the metro Chicago area. And hopefully you're doing the same. Uh, we thank him for persevering and uh, and helping us with our editorial chores as he uh, does so expertly each and every week. And um, we, of course, once again, thank you for listening. Hang in there, everybody. Uh, we uh, can't uh, get through this by ourselves. We're all in this together. And uh, we wish you nothing but uh, the best of, uh, of health and uh, and safety. Uh, Take care until hopefully next week. Uh, We appreciate your listening. Take care. Really, take care, everybody.